to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nate Erskine-Smith. And for those joining me for the first time, I also happen to be the Liberal Member of Parliament here in Beaches East York. Now, this is our first episode of 2021, so in some ways, Happy New Year. But in other ways, already in these early days of 2021, we have seen challenges with vaccine rollout and increasingly negative consequences from COVID, both in cases, but also unfortunately in deaths here in Ontario. So to kick off what we'll call season two of Uncommons, I'm joined by Dr. David Naylor to discuss vaccine rollout and our pandemic response. He's a physician, medical researcher, and former president of U of T, but most importantly, he is uniquely placed for this conversation as he is currently the co-chair of our federal COVID-19 immunity task force. And among a number of past roles, he served as chair of the National Advisory Committee on SARS and Public Health in 2003. David, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Nate. Good to be here. What work has the task force accomplished to date or undertaken so far that Canadians might want to know? The co-chair with me is Catherine Hankins. Kate Hankins is a very distinguished HIV researcher who's had a number of international positions, currently professor of epidemiology at McGill. So I'm sharing that leadership role with someone very capable. Also, uh, Task Force has a wonderful array of talent drawn from across the country from a range of disciplines. So I'm speaking as you know, one among many. And more importantly, most of our work has been done in partnership with public health agencies at the provincial level or with a range of researchers across the country whom we've supported to look at various aspects of the immune response to the virus. In a nutshell, we started out looking to see whether there was widespread background immunity using serology tests. You can understand that in the early days of the epidemic, there was a lot of question about whether there would be wide immunity, whether there was a lot of asymptomatic disease that had spread. I think the long and short uh, of that uh, set of studies was surprisingly little background immunity. Uh, in essence, Nate, what, what seems to have happened was that we had a concentration of our epidemic in Canada in that first wave, very much as we all know, and tragically so in congregate settings, especially long-term care facilities and seniors' homes. And so the community spread was really modest, very low background seroprevalence, sort of one, two percent is what we were finding, suggestive that Canadians were fabulously compliant and that the lockdowns and restrictive measures in that first wave were quite effective. We're continuing to track. We're seeing the numbers rise slightly, but uh, we're really going to have to see what's happened by the end of the fall as we take stock with more of these studies. I would be surprised, however, if we had a lot of background immunity at this point. I think that we're still going to have to rely heavily on vaccines to see our way out of this. There's a whole variety of other studies. Uh, I won't get into the eye-watering details about the science involved where we've been trying to understand the immune response to the virus, working with a huge range of scientific partners across the country. But I think what I can say, Nate, is we're currently focusing more on the vaccine rollout and in particular vaccine surveillance, working again with a range of partners to look at the effectiveness of the vaccines and also supporting the provinces as they look at the safety of the vaccines. On the vaccine rollout, it has seemed slow to date and there are procurement potential concerns and that we may not have the supply that we might want. There are certainly rollout concerns. Best in class right now seems to be Israel, where eye-popping numbers, I read, as of January 5th, they announced 1.5 million people. As of a similar date, we weren't even at 150,000 people. We're well behind our peers, it seems. What are the reasons for that? And do you have any comment about how we can improve those rollout efforts? I think this has become a function of a few factors. You know, one is that 
our first quarter supplies uh, were moderate, but you know we do have over the course of the first three months of the year something like six million doses coming in. They are mostly the messenger RNA vaccines, which you know certainly Pfizer is a bit of a challenge to handle because of the cold chain requirements. Moderna not so much. So I don't think that those issues really explain the delay, though they may have slowed us slightly. I think mostly we have a challenge in that the organization and rollout has not been sufficiently efficient to get the job done. I'm not sure why. It's not as though we weren't anticipating vaccines arriving or we we weren't, I think, enthused across the whole country to get these needles into arms. I think vast numbers of Canadians are keen to be immunized. Obviously, part of the challenge is that the priority populations appropriately are healthcare workers and individuals in long-term care and congregate facilities, such as you know nursing homes, who are older and more vulnerable. Consent is not always straightforward if someone has uh, some cognitive impairment, but I really don't think that's an excuse for the delays we're seeing. I just believe, simply put, that this is not being organized in the most efficient fashion and we need to raise our game. It's going to be a serious toll taken that we don't blanket all those seniors' facilities with a, at least a first dose really fast. That's so important. We know the these mRNA vaccines provide meaningful immunity within sort of 10 to 14 days. We don't know how long it lasts, which is why you do need to get on with a second dose in a reasonably timely fashion. But we have to get those first doses into people. Healthcare workers have been on the front lines putting themselves in harm's way for months now. The least we can do again is to make sure we get first doses into them, give them some peace of mind. We better make sure we define healthcare workers broadly enough so that we, you know, we don't have some of the people on the front lines who get overlooked. Again, there should be more than enough vaccines to cover the seniors in those facilities and other vulnerable people in, in congregate settings, plus healthcare workers. And I would simply say, if the pace doesn't pick up pretty dramatically, I think there's going to be a growing public outcry. I continue to hear positive things about changes being made. Let's watch and see. But I think many of us are concerned and frustrated watching this roll out. Easy to snipe from the sidelines, and I don't want to be a critic. Uh, one of those armchair quarterbacks, but boy, this is not fast enough. And in terms of speeding up the pace, at the federal level, it can be quite frustrating because of that public outcry, which I see growing in my inbox and I see growing in my community, is directed at every elected official because they are frustrated that this isn't happening and people are at continued risk. I want to get to the the SARS report that you wrote many years ago, which I think is relevant in this context to, to some extent as it relates to jurisdictions and local public health units and just the operation of how we respond in, in a fragmented way in Canada unfortunately. But sitting here today, when you look at vaccine rollout, we're not in a place where we can procure more vaccines than we've already committed to to doing so in short order. So the answer is potentially we provide additional resources, manpower, the army. It really comes down to a provincial responsibility in in improving this rollout. But if there's a, a role for the federal government, I'm certainly happy to hear it as well so I can lend my voice to it. But where do you see jurisdictionally, but where, if I were to lean in with my own advocacy efforts, where those advocacy efforts would be better placed. Very tough call, Nate, because the vaccine delivery has traditionally been a provincial and territorial jurisdiction without question. And we know that in flu season, when these are done on a very decentralized basis without priority groups, you know, that machinery 
which varies by province, to be clear, can be pretty efficient. It can get millions of Canadians immunized to help provide pretty substantial coverage against whatever flu is circulating, whatever flu strains are out there. So we know this, that system can move fast. Is it that we are focused on targeted populations so that we can't simply you know, open the floodgates and get to large numbers of people? That may be part of it. And it could be that this the targeted rollout, which is defensible, has meant that we're struggling to figure out the best way to reach those populations. I will say, however, that we know where the healthcare workers are, we know they're keen, and we know where the nursing homes and residential care facilities are. So I'm I'm having trouble figuring out what the rate limiting steps are. As to what the federal government can do otherwise, I'd say that any help they can offer logistically to speed things up would be good. I know that General Fertan and others have made sure that they have set out a timetable for the delivery of the vaccines. They've tried to pin down the supply chains and the timing, which is crucial so that provinces, if they do get going, don't overshoot and we don't have a long, long delay to the second dose. But aside from that, it's not absolutely clear to me what can be done. I think it's a conversation that you might want to have with colleagues in Ottawa. But uh, right now, I think we have to just, all of us, you know, continue to cheer on whatever efforts are being done provincially and territorially and try to keep uh, feet to the fire. I, I would say, finally, I have to imagine the people involved in the rollout are all you know, absolutely 110% motivated to get it done. They uh, are probably uh, cringing a bit as people express justifiable impatience. And my response is, great, just let's get on with it. It's too slow. It's just too slow. And we know, regardless of however fast we can make it, that the vaccine is not going to be rolled out in a complete enough way until the hope was September. I, I, I hope that's still the, the date as far as it goes. I hope faster than that. So, let, so let's be clear about what a reasonable universe looks like. A reasonable universe, if you do the numbers, says by the end of March, with those 6 million doses, we've covered 3 million Canadians. That would include healthcare workers. It would include some indigenous Indigenous communities that are remote and at risk. It would include the seniors and other vulnerable people in these longer term care and residential facilities. Ideally, it would include some seniors residences because they're also potential tinder with real risks. I hope it would include in a, in a rational universe, getting to people over 80 who are living at home and the people who care for them, you know, their, their primary caregiver, be it a family member or otherwise, maybe, and the numbers start to get harder to make all this work, maybe getting to some over 75. But we should be able to hit a lot of these high-risk populations and cut some of the risk, and I hope dramatically cut the death toll by the end of the first quarter. There's enough vaccine to do it if we do this right. When you get to the second quarter, you know, people are talking about, you know, doing a million doses a week, that's not fast enough. In an ideal universe, we would be doing something like 3 million doses a week for those 13 weeks. So we get 40 million doses done. If we get really lucky and there is a single dose vaccine approved, maybe we can scale that back and go a little slower. But if we're dealing with two dose vaccines, uh, then you basically want to get 20 million people done if you can so that we have a better summer. Then we're well on our way towards some level of herd immunity. The, the key in that second quarter is to really go fast. I mean, uh, it's not targeted so much at that point. There will still be priority groups, but you want to open the floodgates and get this vaccine safely into as many Canadians as possible. Second doses, get them lined up too, but especially when you're there trying to break community transmission chains rather than 
protect targeted groups, the emphasis there has to be even more strongly on getting the first doses in as widely as possible. So first quarter targeted to save lives and beyond the first quarter speed at all costs. Yeah, out there in first doses at all costs and be smart about trying to follow up in the vaccines that have a two-dose schedule. Don't get too sporting about it unless we get information saying the immunity does last many more weeks than the trials suggest. The trials are arbitrary after all. The mRNAs are were set up almost as priming series, two doses rather than the traditional primer booster because so little is known about them. So we have to be smart about not getting you know, too sporting here and saying, oh, well, the trials are arbitrary enough that we want to go out eight, nine, 10 weeks. I think that's getting us into trouble, especially with mutation risks. You could have the perfect storm for a lot of vaccine resistance. If you have half immunized people out there while well, the virus is bubbling along and mutating. That's not a good scene. On the other hand, we may find that the protection from the mRNA back first doses is longer, and then we can be a little more strategic about getting the first doses into people. But right now, I think we have to be cautious about how long we let it delay. Other vaccines may look better for us to be, again, a little more graded about how much we focus on the first dose versus getting that second dose in, treating the second dose as more of a booster. So again, this is work that the Immunity Task Force will be doing with a lot of really great partners. We have the Vaccine Task Force in existence. We have the Canadian Immunization Research Network, which is an excellent group. There's the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, which has done stellar work for years and really has taken this issue up. Uh, with tremendous urgency in this wave of COVID-19 vaccines. So we're working with all those groups and with the provinces and territories to try to figure this out. It's going to be a very busy six months, but I sure as heck hope we are much further along by the end of six months and have picked up this pace massively from where we are. And I would hope in the summer we're, we're doing a lot of mop-up and boosters and so on, maybe picking up second doses uh, that didn't get done and being meticulous about all that, just hoping against hope because as the kids go back to school, this you know, we've got to be smart here. And as as the world opens up a bit, hoping against hope that we have a better fall than we had this year, which was pretty miserable and the winter's not much either. And in the immediate term of the next month, two months, three months, Quebec is entering into a much stronger lockdown. I have family in the UK. They've just entered into a, a very strict lockdown as well. There's a, a call to action really from a, num- a cross-section of experts calling for a Canadian shield, which is, as I understand it, a strict lockdown followed by gradual relaxation and keeping with our ability to test, trace, isolate, and support. In the immediate term, do you see a necessity here in Ontario, at least, for a stricter lockdown and a Canadian shield style model for a gradual relaxation and keeping with our ability to test and trace? Because right now it seems like it is out of control. The Indian Shield proposal was a pretty pragmatic approach given where we are. You know, the reality is in Ontario that the case thresholds for response were set too high. They were set without paying attention to advice given by the relevant scientific table. And, you know, that that helped lay the groundwork for a lot of community spread. That means that there is, if I can use the metaphor, embers all over the place. And those embers can flare up. You add to that the holiday period with Hanukkah and Christmas and so on, and people, uh, you know, despite a strong advice to the contrary and laws to the contrary, deciding to get together, you're going to have continued caseload growth. So we, we almost certainly need to maintain you know, one of those very depressing lockdowns. They're terrible for small business. They're hard on mental health. No one wants them. But we managed to jam ourselves into that position by not being 
smart enough about staying ahead of this virus in the fall, at least in Ontario, and I think in several other jurisdictions. You know, the, the thing that's encouraging about the SHIELD proposal is it's not one of these, you know, we must get to zero, uh, we must be absolutist about it. There's a pragmatism about it that says, let's get down to a level we can actually manage. And that means that, you know, we're trying to reduce the marginal damage of the lockdown by not being absolutist. I thought that was commendable. And the point here is that the jurisdictions that have done well have tested and traced to stay ahead of the virus. In many provinces, we let this get to the point where we couldn't test and trace. We were slow testing and tracing anyway, but we had picked it up in some provinces. But when you let this virus get ahead of you, you know, it's, it's like a bunch of fires that can coalesce into an inferno. You can't do that. And on testing and tracing, I look back over my emails back and forth with my federal colleagues. And back in, I think, March or April, we were talking about how South Korea had drive-through testing. Other jurisdictions seem to have embraced rapid testing. Canadian Shield document calls it quick testing. But I know there's been some pushback from some public health experts to say the accuracy is too low. But other folks I've spoken to in public health say, yes, but you make up for inaccuracy with frequency. And if we had these at scale, we could save thousands of lives. And my question being twofold, one, do you think that rapid testing approach at scale is a necessity in the short term? But two, is it possible to scale it up now when we see vaccines coming and you say by Q1, we ought to be in a place where we're able to save lives. Is that rapid testing scaling up on a massive level still an approach that we should be undertaking? I pressed for faster approval of the rapid tests, which fall into two categories. I'll come back to that. And I've I've argued for wider use of them, understanding they are screening tests. Exactly. People get hung up on confusing them with diagnostic tests, the gold standard, but They have a role and in some ways, you know, they have characteristics that are helpful. So think of it this way, that we have, we have one form of rapid test that is these cubes, if you will, or or devices that give you 15 minutes in the best case, 45 minutes more often, but you get an immediate result. You don't have to go through the, the full cycle of polymerase chain reaction testing with amplification through cycles. And those tests are pretty good. They're, you know, they're not like the lab-based tests, but they're competitive. They're pretty reliable. And they can be used in remote areas you know, until you can deploy proper full lab testing there. And we should be doing more deployment. We shouldn't you know, be having a kind of situation where simply because you live in the north remotely, you can't get access to full RT-PCR. But for now, let's Let's do what we can with those tests. But the other area that uh, I think is crucial is to use the antigen tests, which are not quite as good in performance. They, They certainly have deficiencies. But to think of them this way, as you say, if you repeat them, if the viral load is rising, the second test is likely to be positive. They also have a kind of perverse benefit in that they become negative sooner So if someone is recovering and the viral load is dropping and they may no longer be contagious, that negative test may not necessarily be a false negative from the standpoint of infectivity. You've got to be very careful about how you use them. You've got to think through strategically. You've got to target it to the right setting. If someone's symptomatic or they've had contact, you know, at that point, get the full, get the full money, go to the RT-PCR. Of course. But if, if you're looking at, asymptomatic screening in congregate settings, 
repeated antigen tests can give you some read on what's going on and help you identify people who are safe, but who would be continue to be tested to make sure they continue to be positive so that you can continue to get on with your life safely and to pick up the ones who may be symptomatic, who may have minimal symptoms or be minimizing their symptoms. Because we know the other thing that happens is because we don't have you know ideal sick pay, because families are strapped, people keep working despite symptoms. It's easy to slag them and say that's irresponsible, but they're trying to put food on the table for a family or an employer is pressing them to turn up to work. So, you know, these tests, again, can help give us a sense of what's going on in these congregate settings. And I'm encouraged that I think the provinces are getting more comfortable with these as a tool in the toolkit, something that you know, is a complement, doesn't replace the gold standard. And currently there's a federal uh, panel that I've, I've had the privilege to work on, another one thinking about testing and screening. And we've been talking with provincial partners, good provincial representation on the group. I hope that we'll be out with some advice that helps clarify some of the ways these rapid tests in the two categories can be used, and that should be out pretty soon. So long and short, I'm sorry for the, the long lecture academics, you know, you can't stop us, we go on. I think we should be doing a lot more rapid testing, and it doesn't matter that you know, we simply have the vaccines rolling out and that somehow you know, we should just do that and nothing else. This has to be a multi-pronged strategy to get through the six months ahead of us. Otherwise, it's going to be miserable. We've got to get the vaccines done faster. We've got to look at vaccine safety and effectiveness. We have to test more widely using rapid antigen tests and these direct nucleic acid tests that, you know, the sort of lab in a box, uh, more portable or, or point of care tests. And we have to get our overall proper lab capacity up to speed, 200,000 plus tests a day across Canada going. And last but not least, the tracing capacity has to be at a point where we can douse the embers. And the whole point there is to find out where things are smoldering and douse it before it can take off. And when you don't do that, you're always playing catch up. You let this virus get too widespread in the community, you can never keep up with tracing. It's too labor intensive. Some jurisdictions you know, have less privacy concerns and use electronic surveillance more aggressively. I don't think that's going to play well in Canada. So you've got to get this and do shoe leather epidemiology or digital shoe leather with telephone calls. Federal government's been supportive of provinces that have needed help doing the testing and tra- the tracing, uh, Nate. I think that's been very positive. A number of provinces have taken up that support that's been offered through the federal government. You know, as we move through the spring, vaccines, smart, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, the public health measures, as maddening as they are, as damaging in many ways as they can be. We know the side effects, but... but we have to get ahead of this this virus. Great tracing and much more widespread testing. Uh, otherwise, we're looking at a uh, a very bumpy, bumpy winter and spring. The Canadian Shield proposal uh, strikes me as having a lot of pragmatic elements in it. It has to be done with a whole of government strategy. You've got to think about where finance fits. You've got to think about where the folks in employment standards fit. This isn't just about public health. So you got to think about the economic impacts and economic measures to help workers and to help businesses. But I do like the idea of not saying, oh, we'll just sit back now and sort of do half lockdowns and put up with this continuing toll and wait for vaccines to save us. That's not smart and it's not safe. You know, the pushback against rapid testing, I've never really understood. And I'm glad to hear you say just that, that if you use it as a screening tool, it always struck me if you had millions of these tests sufficient to reopen schools after a lockdown and say, we're going to make sure we test repeatedly on a regular weekly basis, 
you're not going to let the virus get away from you with sufficient tracing layered over top of an antigen testing system at scale. So the real question is, can we scale that up in a shorter period of time? I know the federal government has helped procure rapid tests for provinces and, and they haven't been so willing to use them to date. But the real question, I think, going forward then on the rapid testing piece is the ones that we have delivered to the provinces so far, if we had that testing at scale, probably wouldn't be sufficient. So we need more of these tests in the system. Yeah, assuming, assuming Nate, that the provinces and the public health authorities in the provinces are willing uh, to use them. Are willing to use them. And I and I think what's so important is to understand that a negative antigen test is not a license to assume that you are free of the virus and you will behave normally. It basically gives some assurance to people around you that you are very unlikely to be infected right. with the virus. And the other thing I'd say is, in general, you know, once a week is not ideal, given the, the risk of viral buildup and missing that buildup. So in general, a couple times a week would be the minimum I'd want to see for the congregate settings to provide some assurance. But, you know, the, these are not radically expensive tests. So if you, could, you did two during the week and one on the weekend before you came back to work or school, I mean, there's got to be a way to, to manage this. Canadians are smart. They want to help. They want to be empowered. We need a multimodal strategy, all hands on deck to get through the next six months safely and to try to reduce the toll of the virus. You've previously written alongside a number of co-authors about the differential and, and really disproportionate negative impact upon low-income communities and low-income individuals in Canada as a result of the virus, yes, where in Toronto we see a disproportionate number of people with COVID-19 who are coming from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds, but also as it relates to the, the lockdown measures. And so when we look at equity considerations, quite apart from the science, you and your co-authors have written squarely focus on the social determinants of health and to say, on a going forward basis, we need a basic income, we need stronger housing. And yep. these are not just so social issues, these are, these are health issues. And do you think as we've lived through this crisis, that that lesson will be learned and, and that we hopefully will do something about them? I don't know, Nate. I, I think because of the severity of this epidemic and the the way it sort of uncovered the hard realities of the social determinants of health in ways that are much more in everyone's front vision. I mean, in the past, you could sort of drive by them. Now they're right in front of you. You look at the data on racialized neighborhoods in Toronto, high density and low income neighborhoods, they're horrible. It's a, it's a startling demonstration of just the reality that health and income and education attainment are all linked and that we have to think harder about that model. I hope, as I said, that you know, th these lessons will persist. The status quo has enormous inertia, and there is a real risk that people will get vaccinated and the economy will open up and uh, it'll be business as usual. What I think many of us suspect is that the lessons will have enough durability to at least drive some hard consideration of what the range of policy measures are prospectively that would be best to help make Canadians healthy, give them longer, better lives. And here, here's the thing I'd say to you as a, a member of parliament, thinking about these issues uh, on behalf of the public. We've got a huge agenda of possibilities here that matter. We've got gaps in the pharmaceutical coverage. Then you've got long-term care. Boy, talk about a pressing issue of a platform now to think about how we finance, organize, and above all, regulate long-term care. 
somewhere in there, you got to think about mental health. Talk about another thing that's kind of popped right in front of us is the prevalence of mental health issues as challenges for Canadians being a terrible stress test this epidemic. So again, we've talked for years about how to improve access to mental health services. And one of the challenges in Canada is being a pretty tight medical model. Well, how can we use a range of other health professionals? How can we make this a whole of society issue? And on I could go. I mean, there's dental care is out there is another one bubbling. Parliamentary budget officers looked at it in Ottawa. So you put all this together and then you say, okay, somewhere in there, you have to focus on some basics like universal basic income. Can we afford it? Can we afford not to do it? What do we need to do there? I mean, something has to has to move in that direction, I believe. And then there's dealing with underhousing, a national homelessness strategy or underhousing strategy to help people who are vulnerable because they simply don't have income security or housing security. That's a huge issue in terms of health status. So I, I actually think there's going to be, at least I hope, this may be optimistic, a serious national debate as the epidemic recedes, as I'm sure it will, a serious national debate about the health and social priority programs we need to build to have a resilient, more equitable, and ultimately healthier and more productive country. And that that debate's going to be a tough one because the money's finite and there's a huge number of priorities. It's interesting to hear a doctor as experienced as you are say, can we afford not to? Because when you look at the disastrous consequences for people's individual health, but then have knock-on cost consequences for our health system, when we think through whether they are food security issues, which are really income security issues, when you have health costs that are really income security issues, that we don't focus more squarely on the underlying problem, which is people don't have the resources for basic necessities. I think a basic income would be a a significant answer to that problem. Obviously, I I think a serious focus on housing too is important, but you hear it oftentimes. I chair an all-party anti-poverty caucus alongside Senator Kimpate, and there are politicians who speak about this. There are social justice advocates and advocates favoring poverty reduction, but it's very interesting to hear it from a doctor in the context of health and, and the costs related to our health and the health system. You know, I, I had a pretty stark lesson of how important this stuff is in a study that a brilliant uh, younger cardiologist I was working with uh, carried out with colleagues at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, now ICES. We looked at people who had had heart attacks in Ontario using administrative data, obvious limitations, but useful for, again, as a screening test. And we tracked them out for a year after their index hospitalization. And we broke them out using postal codes as proxies, which are pretty good in the forwards rotation area for household income. It's ecological, but you can impute pretty well by neighborhood because those are small enough uh, chunks to give you a, a good averaging. And basically, you know, the quintiles separated dramatically in terms of survival. Obviously, one of the worries is that, you know, is that lack of access to medications, but it seems unlikely we do have pharmaceutical plans for those who receive social assistance. Maybe it's the whole in those who are working but are still disadvantaged. That's not a trivial group of people who are often missed in all these programs. Yeah, huge missing middle. Maybe it's you know more severe pre-existing disease that so we could never really prove that. We had to look back as well as forward. It looked to us as though there was, as others have shown, some cumulative effect, some loss of self-efficacy, some inability to navigate even our vaunted universal healthcare system, some number of factors. Perhaps it was self-care and exercise. I don't know. But something was separating those groups. 
Yeah, it was dramatic. You, it's, it was, a, it was an effect size as big as some of the best drugs you would use to treat heart attacks to change survival. So I, I think poverty is is poison, and I think income security is a good drug. I'm not, as I said, sure how the heck we get there. I'm not sure, you know, the all the marginal costs and benefits of doing it versus a whole bunch of other things that need doing. But boy, we we better start thinking about it because it matters. To bring it back to the context of the pandemic, when you look at the map of Toronto, at least of low-income households and, and neighborhoods, and then you layer on a map of where COVID has been, they're the same map effectively. Yeah, it's the same map. Obviously, lesson learned as it relates to equity and fairness, but you have an interesting perspective in looking back in some ways or maybe looking forward. I'm not sure what the right way to put it is, because not only you have a central role in some ways with the immunity task force response federally, but you also chaired the National Advisory Committee on SARS and Public Health Learning from SARS. One thing struck me as I was going through that report, you and your co-authors say, very similar recommendations are repeated in our report to a report from 1993 related to the global spread of HIV and run down the list of increased support for public health infrastructure and surveillance, rapid lab diagnosis, national vaccine strategy, electronic lab reporting systems, strengthening investigatory capacity, building out stronger support fundamentally for for local public health units. But it does strike me, but curious what your view would be on this. Are we going to, in 2022, there's going to be a report that says we're making very similar recommendations to what was in the 2003 report that was making very similar recommendations to what was in the 1993 report? And are we in this vicious loop of, of not learning these lessons? <laughs> that's a, a wonderfully framed question that's pretty hard to uh, say, no, we're not in a loop as I listen to it. But I think the optimistic view is as follows. Uh, the optimistic view says we're starting in a different spot. If we didn't have a public health agency, even one that I think drifted a bit for a few years and not being supported perhaps uh, optimally, I think we would have been in a tougher position in this pandemic. If we had not had more investment in a national immunization strategy after the 03 report, because there was several hundred million put into that, I think our capacity would have been weaker. And now, you know, we, though watching currently, you worry about it, but I still think it's better than it, it would have been otherwise. And on we go. We have a lot more in the way of a strong national uh, public health laboratory network. We have a whole set of committees set up to try to coordinate response and to keep the provinces and territories in Ottawa aligned. You know, many positives are in place there that weren't there before. I think the reality is that this is, to return to the stress test analogy, you know, a very different beast than SARS. This is the big one that people talked about. It's a pandemic. It's got very insidious and challenging clinical epidemiology with the pre-symptomatic spread droplets and it's, you know, small aerosols that can float around a bit. So it's not classically airborne, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a handful that way too. You know, not as uh, high a death rate as SARS, but enough deaths and a, a very disturbing long-term disability track for some people. So this is, this is a pretty horrible challenge that I think is thrown into high relief work that didn't get done, but also shown that even though we prepared in some ways, we didn't prepare enough. So I, I I hope there will be another review. I hope we will not let things ever drift again in public health. I think of my friends in Singapore who talk about tabletopping regularly to figure out what would happen if there was a SARS-CoV-2, a COVID-19 outbreak. They were way more ready than we were. 
We do need, I think, to have another look and build on what we've got and be careful not to let it slip, which is what I think has happened here. We we rebuilt intelligently. We could have built more. We could have kept building. Instead, we let things slide back a bit. We were still better off than we would have been otherwise. But boy, we, we have to continue to raise our game on this front. The world's getting smaller. We're encroaching all, all kinds of animal habitats. There will be many zoonoses in future. Travel is, you know, suspended now, but will resume hectically. These epidemics are all global out of the gate. People who say, you know, the WHA was slow, they were slow. I think they got bamboozled a bit. I think they even knew they were being bamboozled and were frustrated about it because we didn't have fast enough reporting in those early uh, days. But if you look at some of the data, this virus was already moving around the world before the new year. So the lesson here is you have to be highly vigilant and always ready because these things are going to pop out and spread really fast. So I'm an optimist on this one, Nate, but I, I think the point is fair. We're likely to look again. We're likely to see some things we're missed and have to reinforce them and relearn them. But I think there's going to be some new lessons that are valuable, and I hope we'll stand us in good stead as we face another terrible epidemic at some point. I hope a long time from now, but one never knows. The one lesson that we clearly learned from SARS, at least, was standing up that body of, of the Public Health Officer of Canada. And that does provide greater capacity if we learn a second lesson going forward, which is if we do flow dollars through that office. The point that really struck me in that SARS report was you have these local public health agencies that are ultimately responsible for epidemiological surveillance but also inspecting restaurants. And when Doug Ford comes in and reduces public funding for public health units in some measure, it's largely because the government of the day views that as red tape because they see it as inspecting restaurants and probably over, you know overly inspecting them in some fashion, but missing that they also do this other critical piece of work. And so ensuring that we are flowing sufficient dollars on a going forward basis through our chief public health officer, and that they are able to then say, it's tied, though, to ensuring that you have capacity to do these things. And that struck me as a really important lesson to learn going forward. And then you mentioned the increasing risk of zoonotic diseases. I read the report out of uh, the United Nations Environment Program from July on preventing future pandemics, very much focused on reducing our interactions fundamentally with animals, be it the wildlife trade, be it the consumption of meat, be it reducing climate change risks. And that also strikes me as a conversation on a going forward basis, just as a matter of emergency preparedness that we ought to have as a society. Because if we don't, and I see the number 75 of, of emerging infectious diseases or zoonotic diseases, that strikes me as an area that we need a one health approach and we need our health, our public safety and, and finance fundamentally working together to get something done here in Canada, working with like-minded partners around the world uh, as well. But there are other lessons to learn, I'm sure, but those two right now stand out to me. Yeah, I, I'm encouraged that when you, you think of you know, companies like some of the traditional uh, meat packing or producing companies think of themselves now as protein companies. Agreed. They're, they're diversifying and thinking that you know the future may be much more about plant-based, heaven help us, maybe insect-based protein. But you know the the rethinking of the inefficiency and really the the ecological footprint, say of large-scale cattle farming, I think is helpful from the standpoint of the federal provincial element. Yeah, there, there's there's more to be done in terms of networking on the lab side. 
We've got a very good network. We should strengthen it. The National Microbiology Lab is a is a treasure, but it needs to be sort of stood up, you know, much more as a fully networked entity with a really strong sense of it pulling the federal and provincial and, and territorial elements even more tightly together. They've worked at that. It could be we need to strengthen that and invest in it. We need to think through our emergency response so that that's always on high alert and always well tuned. And it's something that's kind of that core of it is inviolable because we have to be able to flatten things. One, one of the watching this uh, outbreak, I've been struck that, you know, the Federation at times can align and move quite uh, swiftly, but it's a high friction structure as a governing structure. Mostly in a crisis, you want to flatten the hierarchy. You want to have a very shallow command structure to get things done. And obviously, the federal government's role is not to deliver healthcare except to specified uh, groups. And frankly, the expertise in healthcare delivery rests with the provinces. Let's not pretend that, you know, given some of the challenges in Indigenous health services, that the federal government can read lectures to any province about equitable and effective healthcare. And I know things are getting better now with uh, the new structure, so that's impressive to see. But realistically, this is the way the Constitution also sets us up. So we have to figure out some smart way to have the emergency responses integrating healthcare, public health, the federal component, the provincial and territorial component, the indigenous self-governance components, so that we can make sure the next time there is not some jockeying or clumsiness and we move swiftly. You can't run most epidemic responses by giant committees. You can't have every province heading off in radically different directions about what are the criteria for locking down or what are the lab tests that should work. To have every lab test revalidated, I get if you're in an accredited lab, you may feel that's required. But we should have some way to say, I'll believe the results from three other really great labs and get on with it. And I won't reinvent the wheel in every jurisdiction. So I, I think there's there's a whole bunch of stuff to be done there. There's stuff to be done on electronic health records. We still don't have a national vaccine registry that you know we've talked about for years and spent hundreds of millions of dollars on through a long period of time. If you brought them to present dollars, that would be the total. So there's a whack of stuff still to be done. But I, as I said, I, I'm I think we're all completely ground down by this endless uh, epidemic as we come up to a one-year mark. Many of us would like to just kind of go to bed and put a pillow over our heads. But I remain optimistic that we will get through this okay. We've got a lot to do in the next six months and that we can improve a whole bunch of these public health, health and social programs to have a better future. That's my relentlessly positive view of it. Apologies for it. Well, I, I hope you are involved in the review because I have to say when I read your report, they ultimately motivate my advocacy on a completely unrelated topic. I had advocated with colleagues and with then Minister Duncan and the Minister of Finance for funding for basic research. And it was because of reading, but because of constituents and, and researchers who had reached out to me, but then I'd read your report and keep doing what you're doing and keep writing reports and uh, I'll, I'll keep learning from them. And uh, and I, I do, I really appreciate your time. Very, very kind. Just the finally, none of them are my reports. I, I get to be the scribe sitting at the head of a table, listening to smarter people tell me what to write. So I should stop calling them the Naylor reports then. That would make me very happy. I could speak to David Naylor for a very long time on this subject, but that brings this conversation to a close. I really appreciate his time, of course. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca, and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.